everything I have been talking about has been leading to this episode. The Big Day Out was the music festival that came to symbolize the entire scene. It was created by two men, but in many ways it was created by a generation of new music fans and the bands they loved. Welcome to Just Ace, a podcast about the 90s Australian alternative music scene, whatever the hell that means. This week, we look at the birth of The Big Day Out. If you were to, theoretically, fall into a coma in the middle of 1991 and then wake up in the middle of 1992, you would be forgiven for not recognising popular music. It doesn't happen often, but it has happened before, that the course of popular music is turned on its head in just a few short months. Elvis was one. The Beatles were another. Hell, Britney Spears was kind of one. And one of the reasons that these incredible artists, Elvis, the Beatles, Britney, managed to make such an impact is because they are the first crack in the dam that leads to a flood. There were so many Beatles wannabes. There were so many Britney wannabes. But it's not just supply, it's demand. Elvis, the Beatles, Britney, Sex Pistols and many others, they found a new audience and an audience that wanted more of the same. Beatles fans were a new youth and they weren't going to buy Andy Williams. They wanted more Beatles. And if you could feed that audience, you could make a quick buck. The music industry, a lot of it is fueled by making a quick buck. If you've been listening to the previous episodes, you know that I've been spending a lot of time in Sydney talking about 1990 and 1991. But the mainstream chart success of bands like Ratcat, The Hummingbirds and Clouds was, in a lot of ways, not a new audience. Those bands were sold to existing audiences, whether it was younger or older. They were written about in the same places that covered Noiseworks, Baby Animals and other commercial rock bands at the time. They were also writing up these indie bands in Smash Hits magazine and trying to sell them to kids who bought New Kids on the Block. In a lot of ways, their careers buckled when labels tried to twist these bands to fit with the existing mould. That's when the pressure was pushed against these young bands and many of them cracked or at least retreated back to the safety of indie obscurity. It's amazing how so many of the bands I've talked about so far broke up before the 90s ended. But the path of an indie band would all change by 1992, and very quickly. The end of 91, the start of 92, saw another one of these course of history changing musical acts. The name of the band that opened the floodgates this time was Nirvana. This three-piece rock band from this obscure corner of America, some exotic place called Seattle. They seemed to wear cheap clothes, didn't cut their hair, or care to be rock stars as we knew it, circa late 80s, early 90s, and it caught on. There's no way to talk about 90s music culture in any part of the planet without talking about Nirvana. They weren't the first. So-called alternative bands like R.E.M. and Red Hot Chili Peppers were already killing it in the charts before Nirvana broke it big. In Australia, Ratcat had already had two number one singles before Nirvana, and bands like The Hummingbirds were already charting. But nothing was the same after Nirvana. I can tell you numbers. In 1991 and 1992, Nirvana had two top 10 singles in Australia, both taken from their number two charting album, Nevermind. The first was Smells Like Teen Spirit, less of a song, more of a movement. 
in the Triple J Hot 100 of 1991, when the list was still the best of all time. Nirvana had two songs in the top three. Joy Division's perennial Love Will Tear Us Apart sat between Smells Like Teen Spirit at one and Lithium at three. But those numbers barely describe it. I mean, CNC Music Factory had a couple of big singles and a big album around the same time too. But CNC Music Factory weren't a cultural phenomenon, as much as I love some of those big hits. Grunge and Nirvana was a cultural phenomenon. It was a fashion movement, a political movement, a musical movement, and a youth movement. There is a wonderful documentary called Hype, released in 1996, directed by Doug Prey, that talks about the bands of this scene based around the city of Seattle around the same time, early 90s. There's also a lovely section where they talk about alternative culture, with flannels and ripped jeans being sold in high-end department stores. By universal acclaim, the nation's media have declared Seattle the coolest place in the known universe. The music of Seattle is as progressive as the people. Listen to Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Nirvana. Where else can you get the Seattle sound? Best Buy. The scene had a word, an umbrella term that would come to, fairly or unfairly, cover dozens of bands. That word was grunge. And just like with the Beatles, and just like with Britney, there were suddenly dozens of Nirvana wannabes in the charts in the wake of Nirvana. Because suddenly there was an audience for grunge, and they were looking for the next album to buy after Nevermind. And there were plenty of bands offering their version of grunge, whatever the hell that means. The story of how Nirvana changed the music world has been told many times in other places. I will recommend some great books in the show notes. That new audience, that new rush of bands, and the ethics towards the careers they wanted to have, and the music they made, that is the story of American alternative music in the 90s. It was helped along, like in our story, by the rise of new technology, the rise of commercial radio formats, the CD, and the thing we're talking about in this episode, festivals. But perhaps the most tangible way of illustrating how Nirvana changed music is that most of the successful bands I will talk about from here on in, most of them survived the 90s. Because the industry, the audience, and the culture allowed them to survive. They basically ushered in a generation of success. That American grunge shockwave travelled the world, and different countries reacted differently. In the UK, bands rallied against grunge and became even more British, leading to the Britpop movement. In Canada, they frantically rewrote Canadian content laws and requirements to protect Canadian culture being buried. But this is a podcast about the Australian scene in the 90s, and Nirvana had a very particular impact in Australia. First, Australia was, and still is, a small market. When new fads happen, we usually get swamped. Australia has Australian content rules and quotas that are nowhere near strong enough, especially compared to Canada. Even to this day, Australian content quotas are amongst the worst in an English-speaking country. So it allowed commercial radio and commercial media to chase the grunge dollar. And the labels, and probably some of the managers and bands too, saw that they had to be grunge-like to be successful, or at least make that quick buck. Australia were totally under the shadow of Nirvana. If you imagine this podcast is like Marvel films with phases, this episode is the end of phase one. 
And phase two, the next dozen or so episodes, can probably be subtitled The Search for the Australian Nirvana. Whether through lack of imagination or just laziness, Australia's reaction was to replicate. But no one could replicate Nirvana. Sure, the search did give some rock bands a leg up. Suddenly, all those multi-gendered harmony rock groups were swapped out with a lot of three-piece bands with charismatic male frontmen. Nirvana straightened out what alternative rock could be. An alternative became three guys and distortion pedals. The second way Nirvana impacted Australia was physically. Nirvana's Nevermind was released in September 1991, where it charted at 144 in the US. It didn't make an immediate impact. It was in the weeks that followed that saw the band shoot to the top. The album Nevermind only finally hit number one in the US on the 11th of January 1992, four months after it was released. And it would hit number one again in the US in the last week of January. A week where the biggest band in the world at the time, the most important band of the 90s, and one of the most important bands of all time, was in a little former annex of the Commonwealth with a music market that was smaller than Greater Los Angeles, called Australia. Because Nirvana were booked to play a new festival called The Big Day Out. It was part of their only tour of Australia, and they weren't even the headliners. I don't know how much to believe when music industry people have great meet-cute stories. These stories have been massaged by media relations types, told over and over until the real events are smoothed out into a good anecdote. But history is told by the victors, and Ken West liked stories, and he liked victories. The story goes that when Ken West and Vivian Lees, the future founders of The Big Day Out, first met, they were thrown into a prison cell for putting up gig posters somewhere they weren't supposed to. That story plays on the outsider, maverick narrative that The Big Day Out probably likes. But there's a lot of truth to it. They were totally upstarts. Australia's touring scene in the early 90s was well established. Lots of rich and powerful music promoters owned the top end of the game. A lot of them were named Michael. Michael Chug, Michael Kadinsky, and Michael Koppel. You just don't get to be a big band without all your touring deals in place. And that Lees and West managed to crash the scene and come out on top without changing their name to Michael is no small feat. Lees and West were small time, but they weren't nobodies. They were active in the music scene in the 80s. Lees from Melbourne had worked with hunters and collectors, while West from Sydney had toured and tour managed several cool bands. But from all reports, the two men were very different. And the two men continued to live in different cities and were only connected by the festival they created. They would, many years later, fall out completely. But for now, 1992, with a big idea, the two were about to make something brilliant happen. That idea had been brewing for a while. Lees and West had noticed that several tours they might have gotten were going to the bigger promoters, and yes, often named Michael. Either the big promoters were going after smaller fish, or that the fish were growing fast and they had to grow along with their previously small fish. Lees and West also promoted a tour for Ratcat at the height of their 1991 fame, supported by Clouds and Falling Joys. And on that tour, they could see up front that there was a new audience right there. And then there was Lollapalooza, the pioneering 1991 US festival that marketed itself on grunge and the alternative music scene. 
If anything, they were going to be too late if they didn't move soon. One of the bands that West had worked with was the American band, The Violent Femmes, who were the first to introduce West to festivals like Summerfest in the US. What would become the Big Day Out started as a showcase for Violent Femmes. It had been eight years and four albums since they had their breakthrough self-titled album with the hit Blister in the Sun. In 1991, the Violent Femmes had a hot comeback record, with the single American Music having some minor cut through on Triple J. A show in Australia was a good idea, but everyone decided to bolster the lineup with more bands. Ken West made some calls, and one band that was available was Nirvana, who had a cool debut record called Bleach way back in 1989 on the super trendy sub pop label from Seattle. The Bleach album had been distributed by Waterfront in Australia. And Steve Pavlovic, the Plunderers manager, had gotten into managing and tour promotion and was responsible for bringing them out. So no Michaels needed to be involved. Violent Femmes lead singer Gordon Gano later said that he never heard of Nirvana, but someone played him an advanced copy of that second album and he said, OK. He never learnt the name of the band. This was all just moving very fast. Lees and West had the vision to put together a whole day of bands. They decided on the Australia Day long weekend, always in the last week of January, a move that would later put them in line with Triple J's Hottest 100, which they hadn't invented yet. It was winter in the Northern Hemisphere, but warm and summer in Australia, which would also help them in the future. When the show was announced, the lineup was simply eight years between hits Violent Femmes and a band that no one knew called Nirvana, along with some skating and activities and a mysterious and much more for local bands to be announced. It wasn't terribly exciting. The Big Day Out apparently sold 52 tickets on the first day. Tickets were sold at independent record stores like Red Eye, Waterfront and Phantom. They cost $40, which was less than the cost to see some big rock acts like Rod Stewart. The next year, Guns N' Roses toured Australia and it cost $50. But then Nirvana's star began to rise and more acts were added to the bill. They sold 3,000 tickets in a 36-hour period. And of course, the event ultimately sold out completely. I mean, really, Nirvana was so shit-hot at the time, they could have sold 10 times as many tickets just on their own. In fact, Nirvana sold well over 10,000 tickets to just one show in Brisbane on the tour they did around the big day out. I think I must have met more than 10,000 people who have claimed to be at that first big day out. It was one of those gigs. With absolutely nothing to back this up, I will declare Nirvana's set at the first big day out as being the Australian gig that most people have lied about being at. It is the brief history of time of Australian indie rock. It says the world about Nirvana that they played the shows at all. Their lives and the performance fee they commanded had changed so much since the time that they were booked months earlier. They could have asked for more money. They could have changed the deal. They could have demanded to headline over Violent Femmes. But this was the early 90s, and being indie meant not being in it for the money. Nirvana would be the poster child of anti-fame, just as they were becoming super famous. Of course, music festivals were nothing new. Lollapalooza had been a success in the US in mid-1991. Glastonbury and Reading in the UK had been running for decades, but that was more of a camping model over multiple days. 
There was even one called The Big Day Out, organised by UK band The Wonder Stuff, held in 1991. Lees and West had worked with Wonder Stuff and to their credit, have been completely open that they might have nicked the name without thinking. I mean, I wouldn't have heard of it until I heard Ken West credit it in an interview. It's funny, the original poster still says AKA Kenfest, the original working title. It took them a while to find the name. There were festivals in Australia. The Livid Festival started in 1989 and was held in Brisbane and was headlined by the Go-Betweens and Chris Bailey of the Saints. It was pretty much a one-day alternative music festival before the term took hold. I've never heard Livid get the credit from the Big Day Out folks, but like Street Press and other things I'll talk about like the Hottest 100, maybe alternative music festivals were invented in Queensland and they didn't get the credit. Elsewhere there were things like the Meredith Music Festival, which was more of a hippie vibe, a camping festival held just outside of Melbourne. But if anything, this is what the Big Day Out was rallying against. Yes, it was music, and some of it was great music, but it was a niche thing you left the city to do. The Big Day Out was supposed to be inner city and hip. For me, as an Asian kid raised in an inner city flat, the idea of camping was very strange and you needed a group that I didn't have. I can't make enough of a deal about how a festival being held in the city change the demographics of the festival in a more progressive way. The last Glastonbury headliners at this point in 1990 was Rye Cooter. The Big Day Out wanted to be an alternative to what Glastonbury stood for. A music festival specifically for this emerging alternative scene in Australia was new, because this emerging alternative scene was new. And those were inner city kids, and there was more and more of them by the day, and the biggest band in the scene was in town. People overused the term right place, right time, but I can't think of anything else in this story that was more right place and right time than the very first big day out. That place and time was Sydney's Horden Pavilion and the surrounding grounds on the 25th of January 1992. The Horden Pavilion is a short walk from Central Station, the big transport hub in Sydney, and near other big reasons to get together like the Sydney Cricket Ground. It was one direct train from every train station in Sydney. It was a perfect sunny day and the music started at 11.30am. 10,000 kids rocked up, many of them in Nirvana t-shirts. There was a main stage inside the Horden Pavilion, as well as stalls, skating, dodgem cars and other amusements outside. There were also two other stages outside the pavilion. MTV were on ground and interviewed some of the groups. Triple J were on ground crossing over live and recording live sets. A nation of young Australian music lovers tuned in. There were no age restrictions, you just needed ID to drink. The venue didn't quite understand the audience, thinking it would be like a family-oriented Easter show. So they ran out of beer after a couple of hours and for a little while the festival was dry. But they managed to get more from the nearby cricket ground. The Welcome Mat, a band which we will get to, opened the day. And they joined a lineup that was a pretty great snapshot of the music scene at the time. A lot of the bands that we've already talked about. Tide Pretty, Smudge, Falling Joys, Club Hoy and Cosmic Psychos were all in their prime, touring some of their best work. And some stars of tomorrow like UMI, The Meanies and Beasts of Bourbon. The Hard-Ons were fronted by Henry Rollins for a special set. 
Looking back, it's an incredibly diverse lineup in terms of backgrounds and genders of the people on stage to the type of music being played. Perhaps best of all, the first big day out wasn't a grunge festival. Maybe they could have gotten some bigger existing Australian bands, or maybe something a bit more pop. But behind the scenes, Lees and West were working with mates and not going to any bands with existing deals and touring agents named Michael. They had enough between their own contacts and Steve Pavlovic's roster of cool American acts. And in the end, Nirvana, Violent Femmes and Henry Rollins guesting with the hard-ons were the only internationals the festival needed. Lots of people were there that day. Prime Minister at the time, Paul Keating, got tickets for him and his kids, although it's unclear if he actually made it there himself. At one point, Michael Hutchins and the other in excess people turned up at the gates and the organisers let them in. A young man named Tim Friedman and Stevie Plunder of the Plunderers made a pact that day to start a band and they would name that band after the Prime Minister who started Triple J. They would be called the Whitlams. Two of the biggest local bands on the bill were Ratcat and Clouds. Naturally, reflecting that stature, they were put on as headliners on the outside stages which meant they played the same time as Nirvana and Violent Femmes. Not that it really mattered. Even if they did play earlier at a different time, this wasn't their day. Everyone was waiting for Nirvana, who were actually third highest on the bill on the main stage. Groundbreaking First Nations band Yothu Yindi performed after them, followed by Violent Femmes. By all accounts, the Horden Pavilion was full as Nirvana hit the stage. Luckily, Nirvana more than lived up to their reputation. The event had a capacity of 10,000 people, but the Horton Pavilion itself only fit 6,000. But it seems all 10,000 people packed themselves into the Horton anyway. Tim Rogers from UMI was there, Tex Perkins was there, and even Clouds, who quietly finished early so they could catch some of it, watched on. Nirvana's set was recorded and broadcast on Triple J, as was most of the festival. Someone actually filmed it without permission and the bootlegger gave a copy to the organisers, who years later gave a copy to Dave Grohl. It's widely available to listen to and watch on the internet so you can judge for yourself. Actually, most of that Australian tour has been bootlegged to hell. You know the story of how the first Velvet Underground album only sold a small amount but everyone who did started a band? Well, you could argue the first big day out was that kind of thing. 10,000 lives were changed in that one hour. The reviews of the whole day were pretty good. 
there were no disasters other than the beer. Perhaps because the gig was passed into legend, the story has been told and retold, each time with more layers of special spread on top. Nirvana made the first big day out the stuff of legend, but in 1993, their second year, they made a move that would be even more important than Nirvana. The Big Day Out went on tour and it became a national community. According to West, Triple J being national played a part in the decision. He wasn't sure that Triple J would support a Sydney-only festival because he feared their anti-Sydney bias. Also, someone else would just be copying him in Melbourne and everywhere else, so why not do it themselves? The second Big Day Out in 1993 visited Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide and Perth. There was no Nirvana this time, but the festival managed to snag two critically acclaimed bands from the US, super cool Sonic Youth and grunge pioneers Mudhoney. Steve Pavlovic had been touring both. They also matched it with legends like Iggy Pop and future Kylie Minogue backing singer Nick Cave. Lees and West had toured Iggy in Australia before and he would play several more Big Day Out festivals. But there was also a healthy amount of local bands although seven of them carried over from year one. But some of the new ones included Tumbleweed and Tism. In 1994, year three, the festival expanded again to the Gold Coast and Auckland, New Zealand. The price was now $45. Soundgarden, the Ramones, Bjork, Smashing Pumpkins, Teenage Fan Club, and other internationals joined more local bands too. The Big Day Out was particularly good at bringing out the cream of the American alternative scene, Again, probably thanks to Steve Pavlovic. I was, of course, not there in 1992. I was 11 at the time of the first big day out, and even with no age restrictions, I was aware of Ratcat and Nirvana and very little else. The big day out wasn't for a mainstream crowd, at least not yet. If you knew about indie record stores and Triple J, you were in the know. It was a place for people into subculture, with the skating and amusements and stalls and even an art exhibition of local band artwork. This was the audience that bands like The Hummingbirds and Ratcat really could have used a year or two earlier when their labels were trying to squeeze them into the pop charts. Between 1992 and 1994, the Big Day Out had a bit of a clear run. They were the first on the scene and they found that early audience. Just as Australia and the world were trying to figure out what alternative meant, here was the Big Day Out helping us to enjoy it. But it wouldn't last. The success of the Big Day Out bred competition. The second half of the 90s, there was a war over festivals. The Big Day Out, the little upstart festival, would find themselves with a target on their backs. There's still more Big Day Out story to tell in the 90s and the fight for that festival audience, but that is a later episode. I did get to experience the Big Day Out later in the 90s. There's a story I'll tell in a later episode about my time with the band UMI. And one of UMI's managers, Kate Stewart, was also an important part of the Big Day Out. I used to go into the Big Day Out office as a teenager and help out with little things like making up laminate passes on the laminating machine. That Big Day Out office in Surrey Hills was so exciting as a teenager. It was a warehouse and every desk was a mess and everyone who worked there looked like they walked straight out of a Jebediah film clip. I never met Ken West or Vivian Lees. My memory of the Big Day Out staff was it was all run by strong women who got things done and took no bullshit like Kate herself and Sahara Herald who ran the national event. 
And not just them. Everywhere I looked, it was women. And it would be very different a couple of years later when I walked through the doors of major labels. But more on that later. But to just quickly skip ahead for a bit, the big day out carried on until 2014. But by then they weren't selling out shows anymore. Lees and West, the two men who started it all, had a falling out in 2011, and Lee stepped away from the big day out altogether. His share was sold to some Americans. There was a simple announcement in June 2014, some months after that last big day out, that it was over. And that was that. They did it in an era where there was too many festivals anyway, so no one really missed the big day out. It was a sad end because in 1992 to 1994, the Big Day Out was genuinely innovative. They didn't create a new audience. I would argue that Triple J did that more than anyone, except for maybe Nirvana. But the Big Day Out showed the country that this alternative stuff was big business. And there's a whole lot of Australian bands doing it, and a whole lot of young Australians getting into it. The Big Day Out wasn't watered down for the mainstream either. The lineups were great, the best of the weird. Whatever came later, the choice of bands in those early years was spot on. Another brief moment in time was Nirvana themselves. Apart from the big day out, the band toured the rest of Australia in 1992 to sell out shows. In Sydney, they actually announced extra shows to meet demand, but there was really no way to meet the demand. And that was true in more ways than one, and Kurt Cobain killed himself just a little over two years after that first big day out. 1992 and the first big day out was the only time Nirvana ever came to Australia, but the shadow that that band cast was so large that there are still a couple of Nirvana anecdotes in our story to come. It's by complete accident how much everything I've talked about in the episodes before this one come together with The Big Day Out. Triple J, independent record stores, street press, there's Rat Cat, Half a Cow Bands, Clouds and many others. Even Mambo were a sponsor. British punk folk singer Billy Bragg tells this great story about his own teenage experience going to festivals. That as a young man, he went to the Rock Against Racism concert in 1978 in London. Rock Against Racism was a campaign by a bunch of bands to, you know, rock against racism. The concert was headlined by The Clash, and there was a lot written about the crazy events of that day. And yes, for 20-year-old Billy Bragg, it was a thrill to see The Clash. But for him, the experience he took away was he had found his people. He had found people who were interested in the same things he was and saw the world the same way he did and that he was not alone. It's important that the music was on radio and TV, turning people onto new ideas. It's important that there's a network of independent record stores to make the music available to own and cherish. It's important that street press covers the history or that these bands were available to see in pubs. But equally playing a part was seeing that you weren't alone. To leave the radio and record player in your bedroom and seeing that you were part of something, 
the generation of something, the generation of something big. Because the big day out, its legacy isn't a few thousand people got to see Nirvana. It's because several hundred thousands of young Australians got to see themselves. I'm surprised that there is no definitive Big Day Out book, or even a documentary film. The footage of those early years exist. Channel V produced wonderful documentaries celebrating anniversaries that were put together in-house, and those have all been lost. Perhaps it says a little bit about how far the Big Day Out stature has fallen. Ken West was working on a book, his memoir essentially, and he put a few chapters up on the internet. He died in 2022. I hope that book comes out, and I hope a more authoritative history also comes out. Something more than the Double J 2019 podcast about the festival that was presented by Gemma Pike, which is still pretty good and worth checking out. There is one book, and it's a photo book by Sophie Howarth called Peace, Love and Brown Rice. Along with amazing photos, there's also amazing artifacts like the double page spread from Drum Media with the show map and playing times from 1992. Sophie has a photo exhibition that travels around, and if it comes to your town, it's definitely worth checking out as well. It's a shame that CD compilations for The Big Day Out didn't start until 2000. If there was a compilation of the very first Big Day Out, it would be an incredible snapshot of the time. A lot of these bands had played together, but never at this scale, and never all at the same time. I've put together a playlist that kinda shoulda sorta maybe be the first Big Day Out compilation. You can find it on the website. Thanks for listening to this week's episode and the whole first season of the Just Ace podcast. If you want to know how to support this podcast, well, you can go listen to any of the outros from any other episode. Links to everything are in the description, and I'm going to take the length of this Tim Rogers song to just say thank you. I really couldn't be more happy about the reaction. I've been working on doing something for this unnamed scene for over a decade. I found the emails recently from 2011 when Just Ace, with that name, was going to be a major label compilation. You make these things and you don't know what will connect. And I've gotten so many emails and conversations with people telling me their stories. And least importantly of all, that someone got the joke of a music backing track or a dumb title or the hidden track on the CD episode. Some people have been very nice and said how the work that I've been doing is important. And I obviously agree and I've been putting my back into this, but I also like it when something silly I did made someone laugh. I guess that's just how my brain works. What's next? Well, season two, which will take us to the end of 1994 and halfway through our story. There's more stories about what happened with labels, what happened with radio, what happened with TV and music writing and much more. And more bands join our story, including some young kids named Silverchair and a band I haven't talked about enough called UMI. I expect it will hit your podcast feeds around the middle of next year. 
That's it. Thank you again for listening and supporting, and I'll see you all next year. Start again. <laughs>